Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are going through the entire uh, book of Acts, 28 chapters. Uh, we are providing notes for all of these studies and each study is recorded. If you are just joining us or if you've missed any of the studies, we urge you to go back and get the notes and the recordings for any of those sections that you've missed. Uh, that's available at our website, new-life-ministries.org. You can follow us live each week, Wednesday nights at 7.30, either on the telephone, we can get that information to you, or you can log in to mixlr.com and follow New Life Ministries. That's our broadcast name. All right, I want to get right into it tonight. We're going deep tonight. So fasten your seatbelts. We are finishing up chapter 13 in the book of Acts, and this has brought us to part 8 of what will be a 12-part uh, outline. And we're somewhere around page 143, if you're following in the notes. I'm going to jump around a little bit tonight and even add a few scriptures that aren't found in the notes. But to recap from our last time together, we are looking at one particular verse of scripture that I think is profoundly interesting, and it's something we need to spend some time looking at in greater detail. I'm referring to verse 48 in Acts 13, and we've already covered the context, but let me give this once again. Paul and Barnabas had gone into the synagogue, as was always their custom. They would first offer the message of salvation to the Jews in any town where they went. Particularly if it was a town large enough to have a synagogue, they would go first to the synagogue and present the gospel. Well, they did that here. And a few believed, but many of the Jews rejected the word and actually turned on Paul and Barnabas, and as is often the case in the book of Acts, created disturbance, stirred up trouble, and so forth. And in response to that, Paul and Barnabas had said something very strong to the Jews who were causing all this trouble in this place called Pisidian Antioch, not to be confused with Antioch, Syria, which we'll be looking at a lot more carefully a little further along in the book of Acts. But anyway, here's what they said to the Jews who had rejected their message. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And when they mentioned that they were now turning to the Gentiles with the word of God, it goes on to explain the Gentiles were very happy to hear about that. And they received the word of God with gladness. And verse 48, the verse we're going to zero in on, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, that the apostles were now 
turning to them with the word of truth. They were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now that's the phrase we're examining. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now before we dive into this, let me say one more thing. How you and I respond to, react to, the Word of God is ultimately going to determine our destiny. Let, let me just lay that out plain and flat at the very beginning here. How you and I respond to, react to, the Word of God determines our destiny. And when you and I stand before the judge of all judges, the only thing he's going to judge us on is what we did. We're not going to have any excuse that so-and-so said this, or God did that, or somebody did this. We will be judged solely on how we responded to God's gracious, merciful offer of salvation. So I want to establish that kind of as the foundation of our whole discussion. Now, another thing that impressed me as I was going back over the previous chapters in the book of Acts, I've mentioned this, Luke from time to time, he gives what I've called a progress report. And it often reads something like this, and the word of God grew and spread and the number of disciples was multiplied greatly. Well, notice, in order for the church to grow, the Word of God first had to grow. It had to spread. Its influence was being enlarged and extended. And here's what the Lord impressed on my heart last week as I was praying over that. Unless you and I are growing in the Word of God, and unless the Word of God is growing in us, we're not going to grow. It's that simple. The Word of God is what determines the growth of the disciple and, in a larger context, the growth of the church. That's why, as I said, how you and I process and respond to the Word of God determines it all. And I don't want to get too far afield tonight, but I'm reminded of the parable of the sower. The same seed fell on different kinds of ground. And then Jesus interpreted that parable. The seed, of course, is the Word of God. But the different types of ground refer to different types of people, particularly different types of hearts. And what we're looking for is a good soil heart, a heart that loves the Word of God, embraces the Word of God, believes in the Word of God, finds hope and life and strength in the Word of God. And so, we have these two groups before us. The Jews, who were always first offered the word of God and the word of salvation, they have, by and large, rejected that word, 
Paul announces, we're shaking the dust off our feet, we're leaving you, and we're now in fulfillment of prophecy, and he actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 49, we're now taking the light of salvation to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were excited. They were very happy to hear that. And I want you to listen to these words again, because I think it helps us as we're going to dig deeper into trying to understand this passage. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Important phrase. They honored the word of the Lord. Well, what had the Jews done? They had rejected the word, and more importantly, Paul said, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Huh, how interesting. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, and the same words are used two verses later in reference to the Gentiles, eternal life, but now he says they were appointed for eternal life. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, the debate has gone on for centuries. Whole books are written on this. Whole courses are given in the theological seminaries. I'm not even going to attempt to cover all of that. I'm going to try to make it simple, but what we are going to do is rather than trying to just promote a certain favorite position, we want to look at as as many scriptures as possible to enlarge our revelation of who God is and how God works. Because this is an important question. What happened here? Did they believe and because they believed, they were given eternal life? Or, as the text seems to indicate, were they first somehow appointed to eternal life, and that's what resulted in their believing? Now, if you missed the last study, I urge you to look at the notes and also listen to the audio recording, because we're not going to go over all that again, but... We looked in some detail at the meaning of the word appointed. And this is critical to understanding this whole passage. The word is always used in the New Testament, and it's used about 16 times. It's always used in this context. Some external force, person, or power is appointing something else. That's important. It never comes from within. In other words, I don't appoint myself to something. Someone or some entity outside of me, with the power and the authority, appoints me. And it means to arrange, to assign, to dispose, to determine, to set, or to ordain something. So, what Luke indicates here is something outside of these Gentiles was destining them, ordaining them, disposing them to eternal life. 
they were already appointed or disposed to eternal life before they believed. Now, here's the big debate. As I mentioned, it's gone on for centuries. The one extreme is what we might call Calvinism or even hyper-Calvinism. The extreme Calvinist view goes something like this, and I'm making it simple tonight. It's more complex than this, but I'm trying to make it simple. The extreme view is God from eternity past, He preordained a select group of people to be saved. They're the only ones that are ever going to be saved. Everyone else is already going to hell. There's nothing you and I can do to change that. So they're pre-appointed, pre-ordained to salvation, and that's why they became believers. That's one extreme view. At the other end of the spectrum is another extreme view. The extreme Armenian view, as it's called, is God didn't have anything to do with this. He offers the word of salvation to anyone and everyone, and whoever believes receives eternal life. It's entirely up to the person and what they choose to do of their own free will. So one extreme is everything's been prearranged, foreordained by God. We're kind of like little puppets on strings, and God dictates everything from start to finish. At the other end, man is the one who determines his own destiny. Well, I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't believe either of those extreme views is totally correct, nor is it totally wrong. And that's where it gets hard for our puny little human brains to start to understand an infinite and eternal God. I'm not even going to pretend tonight to understand all of this. And here's the reason why. In Ephesians 1, Paul makes reference to the will of God. Alright? We all understand that. God has a will. He has plans. He has purposes. It's the will of God. Well, here's the problem. He refers to the mystery of God's will. In the Bible, a mystery is something that you and I cannot possibly figure out we cannot possibly analyze or understand with human intellect. It is something that must be revealed to us. And by no coincidence, in the same chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, he makes reference in verse 9 to the mystery of God's will. Then in verses 17 and 18, he prays for the Ephesians, you know the prayer, that they might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that the eyes of their understanding might be opened, enlightened, so that they might have a revelation of who God is and what he has purposed and planned. In Romans 11, I want to read these verses. They're not in your notes, but just bear with me as I'm adding a few more details here tonight. I think, it, I think this is important. 
not only in the context that we're examining, but any biblical doctrines or truths that are hard for us to understand, this might help bring a little bit more sanity into the whole process, rather than us getting into our little corners and fighting and debating about these things. Here's what Paul says in Romans 11, and if you're you're familiar with Romans, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he talks about some really deep things. Um, Election by grace, foreordained, predestined, some really deep theological concepts. And he sort of ties it all together in these two verses. Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Catch this. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Another translation says, his ways are beyond our finding out. We can't understand all of who God is, His wisdom, His knowledge, His judgments, His ways. And then verse 34, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? In Isaiah 55, of course, God declares very boldly and plainly, His ways are beyond our comprehension. He's not just a little bit smarter than us, a little bit wiser than us. It's a gap as great as the heavens from the earth. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are as high above you as the heavens are above the earth. Millions and millions of light years difference. And so, when we try to even grasp a difficult subject like the one we're examining, is there sovereign election involved here, or is it just human choice and human decision? Again, I'm going to tell you right up front, we don't know. It's beyond our finding out. My point in this section of our study is not to try to tell you, here's what it means, here's the truth about this. Rather, I want us to look at as many scriptures as we can that shed light on this subject, and then pray that the Holy Spirit will enlighten us, give us revelation in something that, quite frankly, is past human ability to understand or to find out. Paul puts it another way when he writes to the Corinthians. He says, and I would argue he was the apostle with the greatest knowledge, wisdom, understanding, revelation of any of the New Testament writers, and yet he humbly says in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, we know in part. We know in part. So, if you ever hear anyone claiming they know it all, they've got the whole Bible figured out, 
They've got God all figured out. They've got these neat little boxes. All their little doctrines are nice, neat little boxes, and everything fits perfectly inside each one of those boxes. Run as fast as you can. He's a false apostle, a false teacher, or a false prophet. I'm not being facetious here. Run. Because if Paul only knew in part, who in the world do any of us think we are claiming we've got it all figured out? And I get very uncomfortable when I hear a preacher on the radio or the television that comes across with this kind of an air that he's got God all figured out. Oh, really? No, I don't think so. God is a mystery. We know him a little bit. We know him in part. So, with all of that as kind of a disclaimer, let's dive in a little bit deeper now. And on page 143 in your notes, I want to pick it up from point number 10. We've already covered this, but I'm going to add some more to what's already in your notes. And let me read the opening statement here uh, with verse with point number 10. It says, Being appointed for eternal life does not properly refer to an eternal decree or directly to the doctrine of election, though some infer that. It simply refers to the Gentiles being disposed to embrace eternal life. They were inclined by an influence outside of themselves that disposed them to embrace eternal life and believe. Well, that external influence is pretty obviously God. More specifically, I believe it refers to the influence of the Holy Spirit and the operation of God's grace on the heart of the fallen sinner. Now, you can argue, and we're going to look at this a little bit further along, you can argue uh, whether or not the sinner is even capable of repenting, believing, and turning to God on his own, without some external influence. Paul seems to indicate in other parts of his writings that the sinner, by himself, of himself, is not capable of doing that. He's dead in sins, there's none righteous, no not one, and they don't even look for God. They're not even seeking for God. And so, we have a real problem when we start saying it's all about man's decision whether or not he chooses to repent and believe or not. Yes, the sinner needs to repent. Yes, the sinner needs to believe. But can he do it without some outside influence? Well, two metaphors that are often used in the New Testament to refer to salvation we want to look at even a little bit more carefully tonight. One of them we're quite familiar with. It's that of being born again. 
And we're not going to read all those verses again, but let me read again, since it's right here in front of us, John 1, verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who received him, received Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now in John 3, we read the story of Nicodemus when he came to Jesus. Jesus repeats this again there and tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're born of water and of the Spirit. More literally, all of these scriptures should be translated born from above. Not just born again, but born from above. I think that's very, very profound. They were begotten, not by something internal, but they were begotten from heaven. An external force from heaven, namely God, begat them, gave them new birth. And this is where I want to take you now. These are not found in your notes, but I think they're critical to this discussion. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're just going to read one verse, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, remember that word mercy, in His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The words are very important here. He gave us new birth. Well, we use that expression always when parents have a child. She gave birth to little Bobby or little Mary or little Jose. She gave birth. And if you follow the metaphor, which I believe scriptures back this up, little Johnny, little Mary, little Jose had absolutely nothing to do with their birth. Listen to me carefully here. They had nothing to do with their birth. Their parents determined the birth of that child. Their parents gave birth to that child. And Peter seems to follow along with that same understanding here in relation to the new birth. We were born from above, or born of God. Well, did we have anything to do with the decision to do that? No. We just read in John 1, born not of natural descent, not of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. It was God's will that you and I be born again. Therefore, Peter says, Man, if you're born again, get down on your knees right now, lift up your hands, and start praising God for His great mercy, because He gave you a gift. He gave you 
new birth. You have nothing to do with it. You claim nothing of your own. It came externally from above. You were born from above. Okay? Stay with me here. Now we're going to turn to James. This isn't just one New Testament writer that talks this way. And again, I want to emphasize, we need to get our theology, our concept of who God is and how God works, not from books and theologians and radio and TV preachers, not even from pastors. We need to ultimately get our theology from the Word of God. And it should line up with every single scripture in the Bible. And if there's a scripture that doesn't fit our theology, well, maybe we better go back to God in prayer and say, Lord, I'm not sure I understand this. And I'm not going to try to make my doctrine fit if it doesn't fit. Help me to understand, broaden my revelation of who you are. Okay, here it comes. James 1, verses 17 and 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Sounds a little bit like Peter. The gift of the new birth came from above. Well, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Stop. James chooses his words very carefully here. He doesn't say, God or the Sovereign, or the Almighty, he's very specific in referring to God here as Father. And there's a reason why. He's also talking about a specific gift, the gift of being born by the Heavenly Father. Let me read it all again. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose. He chose. King James says, of his own will. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. I want you to notice very carefully what it doesn't say. Well, in 1974... I chose to receive Christ, and I got born again. Well, we often talk that way, but that's not necessarily correct theologically. James says, the choice wasn't yours, it wasn't mine, it was the Father's choice. And that's where we get into this whole debate about election. Election simply refers to God's choice. Did God choose you and me to be saved. Well, this seems to lean in that direction. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Again, if we examine the metaphor, the baby doesn't choose to be born. The baby has nothing to do with that. It wasn't his act, nor was it his decision. It was the parents' act, the parents' will, the parents' decision to give that child birth. Now, another metaphor 
that is also used in the New Testament to refer to the miracle of salvation is that of the dead being raised to life. Now, we're back in our notes, page 144, um, little letter D, Ephesians 2. Paul starts off the chapter reminding the Ephesian believers, and you and me as well, we were once dead in sins and trespasses. He uses that word very literally. We were dead. Dead in sins. We had no life with God. We were alienated, cut off from the life of God. Dead in our sins. But, verse 4, because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, there's that word again, mercy. God had mercy on us and made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. There it is again. It didn't come from you. It's not something internal. It's external. It came as a gift from God, not from yourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. We take credit for nothing. The whole process of salvation, God gets all the thanks, praise, and glory because it was His gift to us. Now, here's the metaphor. We were dead. God made us alive. Well, let's look at the implications. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Dead person can't move, can't think, can't repent, can't believe, can't speak. A dead person is dead. And Paul uses that word specifically here to explain to us the process that took place to bring you and me into salvation. We were dead. Well, then we need an external force and power beyond ourselves because dead people can't raise themselves up. The external force here was the God who raises the dead. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Why? It's all about His mercy and His grace. It is the gift of God, not from ourselves. Now, bear with me here, because I'm painting one half of the discussion, and then we're now going to swing to the other end and look at the other side. Remember I told you at the beginning, neither extreme by itself is correct. Somewhere, both of them are truth. Both of them are a part of the whole picture. Now, 
We all understand, I think, that the two basic steps to being saved are repent and believe. You find that all through the New Testament. First words out of Jesus' mouth, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And whoever believes is born again, receives eternal life. I think we can all agree, repentance and faith are the keys to salvation. Well, the other extreme is, yeah, right, pastor, finally you're getting it. has nothing to do with uh, sovereign election or God choosing some and not choosing others. He sends out the gospel message, and then those that respond with repentance and faith, they're saved, and they go to heaven. Okay, great. However, there's another expression that we stumbled across. We didn't spend too much time on it, but we're going to come back to it now in the book of Acts, way back in chapter 11. When Peter was explaining to the Jews in Jerusalem what had happened in the house of Cornelius and how the Gentiles had received the gospel and how God supernaturally fell on them, baptizing all of them in the Holy Spirit. He commanded them all to be baptized in water, and for the first time officially, Gentiles were being included in the church, in the body of Christ. After he explained all of that to the apostles and elders and other Jews in Jerusalem, here's what they said. Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard this, that's Peter's report, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, quote, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. As I mentioned earlier, you and I, we may have our sort of pre-formed or preconceived notions of who God is and how God works, and yeah, 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 I got it all figured out. I already have all my little boxes neatly packed. I know how God works, so don't try to teach me anything new. Well, if that's the way you are, I probably can't teach you anything new, but hopefully... Uh, we can enlarge our hearts and minds to a point where all of these scriptures fit with our theology. And as I've been studying through the book of Acts, I've come across some of these scriptures, and it's caused me to stop and say, wait a minute, does my theology line up with the theology that Luke and Paul and the other believers in the first church had. Because obviously, they had it right. Their theology was correct. How does mine line up with that? Well, this gives us a clue here. Their response when they heard that Gentiles were getting saved was not, well, hallelujah. Anybody who wants to, they can respond to the word of God with repentance and faith. Praise God for that. No, listen carefully to their words. They praised God saying, Then God, notice the subject of the sentence is not the Gentiles, the subject of the sentence is not Peter, 
the subject of the sentence is God, the originator of all of this. God is the one that started the ball rolling here. God has granted something to the Gentiles. What did he grant them? He granted them repentance. Wait a minute. I thought we were commanded repentance. Yes, indeed we are. Every sinner is commanded by God to repent. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. The only people going to heaven are those who repent. It's very clear from Scripture. But, their understanding was Gentiles, at least Gentiles, we can say this specifically, don't repent until God grants them repentance. Notice again the implication. Some external influence coming from God, disposing them, inclining them toward repentance. And the repentance precedes eternal life. God grants the repentance, and they repent unto life. This is not some obscure passage of Scripture that we're trying to build a whole doctrine around. You find this all throughout the New Testament. Look later on in Paul's writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. And the implication here is profound. Yes, God commands me to repent, but apparently I'm not even able to repent unless God enables me, unless God grants me repentance. We saw in John 6, no one can come to Christ unless God the Father draws him and enables him. He's not able to come to Christ in and of himself. He needs some external enabling, and it must come from God. God's the only one that can enable the sinner to come to Jesus. Here we go, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, and listen to this very carefully, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I want you to get this picture. We have a sinner. He's unrepentant. He's arguing with the pastor. He's opposing him. He's rejecting the good news that the pastor is preaching. He doesn't want to be saved. He wants to argue. He wants to debate. First of all, Paul says, don't argue with him. Don't get into quarrels with people like that. Rather, go to prayer. Go to God in prayer with hope. Notice that word hope. This passage of scripture has meant a lot to me in recent years. It has helped me greatly 
as a servant of God, I often find myself speaking to people who oppose me. They don't necessarily believe the same way I believe. They have their own ideas about who God is and what God does and what God doesn't do. And when I was younger, I would have probably gotten into arguments more frequently. I'm trying not to argue now. I'm trying not to quarrel or debate. Rather, I go back to God in prayer and I say, God, I have hope for so-and-so. My hope is that you will grant them repentance. Right now, they can't repent. Right now, they're just arguing, fighting, resisting, rejecting. But, God, I have hope that as I pray for that individual, you will grant them repentance. Notice who initiates all this? Not the pastor, not the sinner, God. God has to take the first step in granting them repentance. Then, that will lead them to a knowledge of the truth, that will bring them to their senses, then they can escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive. <clears throat> Apparently, even repentance is something God must work into the sinner's heart before he can do it. He can't do it on his own. God must grant repentance. Well, moving a little bit ahead of where we are in the book of Acts, but I think it's appropriate to look at it now. In Acts 16, Paul meets a woman in Philippi named Lydia. And let's read about what happens here. Acts 16, verses 13 to 15. On the Sabbath... We went outside the city gate to the river. Luke is with Paul on this part of the journey, so he's giving a first-hand account. We went. We went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Now, that doesn't mean she was a Christian believer. She was a worshiper of God. doesn't even say that she was converted to Judaism, but in some sense she had an understanding of God <coughs> and was in her own way reverencing God and worshiping God. But look at the next part. The Lord opened her heart. Ah. Paul's preaching, but the Lord did something that neither Paul nor Luke nor anyone else could do. The Lord opened her heart. Let me put it another way. He disposed her. He inclined her toward the truth. God had to initiate this. Paul preached, but the Lord opened. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Well, what's the first response of the gospel? It's repentance, and then it's faith. This is simply putting in another set of words 
God granted her repentance and God gave her the faith to believe. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She got saved. She became a Christian right then and there. She was born again. And we see the evidence immediately. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she was immediately ready to become a disciple and take water baptism. She invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. <clears throat> and she persuaded us. So, thus far, we're only looking at one side of the picture. And that is, there needs to be some external appointing, ordaining, disposing on the part of God before the sinner can even repent, believe, or respond to the Word of God. The Gentiles were appointed unto eternal life, and thus they believed. Well, putting all that together does seem to strongly imply sovereign election. In other words, so far, it seems to be tipping toward the side of Calvinism or sovereign election. We're not done yet, but so far, it definitely seems to point in that direction. God disposed them to embrace eternal life. Many view this verse as a simple statement on the fact that God, who is sovereign, that means He can do whatever He wants, He can choose whatever He wants, His will reigns supreme, and remember, His will is a mystery, but somehow God sovereignly elects people to be saved, emphasizing that this verse 48 of Acts 13, we should just take it at face value. They were appointed to eternal life, and that's why they believe. The Bible definitely teaches, and follow me carefully on this next part, because some who are already kind of leaning toward the other side, they may just plug their ears and say, I don't want to hear any of this. This is all craziness. Well, this is all Scripture, my friend. And again, we want to look at all the Scriptures before we start forming our little opinion or position pro or con. We need to look at everything the Bible has to say about this subject. And the Bible definitely teaches, I can say this without any hesitation, the Bible definitely teaches that God chose some before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. He gave them to Christ and He enabled them to come to Christ. That God does this according to His own plan, His own will, a plan which is unchangeable, just as He Himself is unchangeable, is clear in a number of scriptures. And before we close out for tonight, and we're, we're not going to finish this section yet, and I don't want to hurry, so we'll pick it up again next time, but let me at least read these next few scriptures. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. Just listen carefully to each and every one of these passages. 
This one I'm reading from the New King James. They're all similar. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Note that phrase, election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. In other words, if I did something to earn salvation, then I can take credit for something. But if it's all by grace, then it's the election of grace. And if it's by grace, and no longer of works, otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. This is what we call in mathematics mutually exclusive. It's either one or the other. It's either all grace or all works when we're talking about salvation. <clears throat> it's either all the election of grace, and you and I have nothing to boast, we saw that in Ephesians 2, or maybe... I can hang my hat on at least something. Well, I repented and I believe. I can take credit for that much. Paul cautions us, if it's grace, it's all grace. It's nothing of your works. <clears throat> the next scripture in our list is even more amazing. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. God, who has saved us, and called us to a holy life. So far, so good. That's easy to understand. Not because of anything we have done. That seems to confirm what we just read in Romans. It's all about grace, not because of our works. I'm still okay with that. I can wrap my little brain around that so far. Here's where it gets hard, though. Let me read it again. God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Whoa! His own purpose concerning your salvation was before, not only before you were born, before the beginning of time. Wow. If that doesn't blow you away, the next passage will. Ephesians 1. Here's where we read about the mystery of God's will. Okay? Ephesians 1, from verse 4. I'm just citing portions of it, I would urge you to read the whole chapter on your own. For He, that's God, chose us in Him. Okay? Remember, election is choosing. He chose, He elected us in Him when? Before the creation of the world. Now my question, I'm a simple guy, I don't like to make it too complicated. Before the beginning of time, what were you and I capable of doing, choosing, thinking, saying, or anything? 
There's not even any discussion there. We didn't exist yet. And this choice, this election, Paul says very clearly here, was already made. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. He's not done yet. In love, He predestined. He destined ahead of time. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. He predestined our birth, our adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Verse 9 is where He refers to the mystery of His will. Then we drop down to verse 11. And yes, this is all a mystery. It cannot possibly be comprehended with the human intellect. Verse 11, In Him we were also chosen. There's the word again, chosen, elected, same word. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to, not our plan, not our decision, not our will, according to the plan of Him who works out everything, 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 in conformity with the purpose of His will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ, follow this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't throw out the importance of hearing the word of God and responding to it in faith. All he's saying is, there was a predestination, a predisposition, if you will, on the part of God, that we were chosen to become sons, chosen to become believers. Okay, let's move along. John 17, Jesus' final prayer to the Father, the night before He went to the cross. Verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Verse 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now I want you to notice the order here. They first belong to the Father. The Father, who is absolutely sovereign, chose to give them to His Son. Those who were given to the Son are the ones to whom Jesus revealed the Father. And He's praying for them. Not for the world, but for this elect group that the Father had already chosen as His own, and He then gave them 
to the Son. If you study over <clears throat> John 17 carefully, you'll see this over and over and over in that prayer. They belong to you, Father, and you gave them to me. And I watched over them, I kept them, etc., etc. All right, we got to finish up here. Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He knew them ahead of time, He also predestined, He destined them ahead of time. Foreknew, predestined, to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. They become children, sons and daughters of God. Therefore, Jesus is their elder brother. Verse 30, And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Before any of us had a chance to do anything, God foreknew us, God predestined us, and having predestined us, He then calls us. Notice the order. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and then glorified. We're going to have to stop there. We have much more ground to cover. So don't think we've even gotten halfway through this yet. We're going to finish looking at as many scriptures as possible that are used for the side of sovereign election, but then we're going to turn to a whole host of other scriptures that show what seems to be the exact opposite. But again, God is not confused. God is not conflicted. If there's any conflict, it's in our own human minds and their difficulty in understanding or taking in the length, the breadth, the depth, and the height of God's unsearchable wisdom, knowledge, the mystery of His will. So, we'll put it on pause here, and we're going to come right back to point 13 as we pick this up next time. Let's close in prayer together. Father, I thank You for the Word of God. I pray that the Word of God would grow, would be enlarged in our hearts, that You would give us deeper understanding and revelation in all of the Scriptures, not just our favorite Scriptures, but help us to understand all of the Word of God. And Lord, we confess tonight that Your ways are far above ours. Your thoughts are beyond ours, as high as the heavens are above the earth. So we humble ourselves, and we call on you, Holy Spirit, to give us enlightenment, to give us revelation, to open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand and know better who Jesus Christ is. Give us insight and understanding into the mystery of your will. And God, this is a 
critical discussion that we're having because it involves who is saved. How do sinners get saved? Is it simply their own choice, or is there some operation of God that disposes them towards salvation? And God, we know what the Scriptures say. You're not willing that any perish. You want all to be saved, and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And God, primarily, you've placed us here on earth not to be theologians, but to be ambassadors, and to be preachers of the good news, so that we can see souls saved coming out of darkness into your marvelous light. We want to see souls born from above, and have that spiritual DNA inside of them, born of the incorruptible seed, the Word of God. And so, Lord, we want to understand the Scriptures, we want to understand the whole process better, so that we can be more effective in bringing souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, bless each and every one that has joined with us in this study. As we continue this discussion next time, Give us insight, give us wisdom, give us understanding, O God, as only you can do. In Jesus' name.